Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Please take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of John. We pick up where we left off last week, today in the 18th chapter of the Gospel of John. It was a warm summer night in Lincoln County, New Mexico in 1881 when Pete Maxwell was suddenly awakened by a stranger in his room. The stranger was no more than a silhouette, but the man identified himself and immediately Maxwell knew he was in good company. The man was on a mission. His mission was to hunt down an escapee from the jail in Lincoln County. He was the sheriff. His name was Pat Garrett. He told him, have you seen Billy? And he knew who he was talking about. William Bonney was his alias, his actual name, Henry McCarty. We know him as Billy the Kid. He said, have you seen Billy? And he said, no, I have not seen him. Well, he probably was lying because he and Billy the Kid were friends as well. In fact, Billy the Kid was romantically involved with his daughter, Margarita. So, It was not long before, as fate would have it, in walks Billy the Kid into the same bedroom. The bedroom was poorly lit at best. And he said, Ken S., Ken S., who are you? Who are you? And he was shouting out to this shadowy figure, Pat Garrett. And before long, guns were drawn, and Billy the Kid lay dead. Garrett did not go with the intention of killing Billy the Kid. He wanted to take him back alive and face judgment. We're looking at another scene of apprehension of someone who was thought to be a nuisance to the nation of Israel, if not the empire of Rome. We see that in the gathering of the people who came there to arrest him. Of course, I'm talking about Jesus. We read Luke's treatment of that. Now we're looking at John's treatment of this moment of apprehension of Christ. Let's look at verses 1 through 12. I'm going to read them in entirety, and then we're going to see what lessons God has for us from this passage of Scripture. I'm reading today from the New International Scripture, the New National, I'll get it right the third time, the New American Standard Bible. And you follow along in whatever translation you have. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden into which he himself entered in his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there 
with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. When therefore he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, therefore, he asked them, this is rather comical, quite frankly, they're on the ground, and he's asking them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way that the word might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave, cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. Jesus, therefore, said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. What can we learn about the person of Christ from this passage of Scripture, but also about how we can be like him in the way in which we do what we do as we trust him for his ability to do things that we ordinarily would not even consider doing and see Him work in and through us. Really, this story is largely, if not primarily, dealing with the authority of Jesus Christ. Now let's back up just a moment. Who is Jesus? He is God become man. He is described at the outset of the Gospel of John as the Word. And we are told that the Word was God, and the Word is God, and the Word was full of God's person and God's grace and God's truth. So, Jesus is the God-man. But in His deity and in His humanity, which were wed to one another, Jesus make statements like the one that is found in John 6, 48. He said, I did not come down to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Do you find that interesting? Like I do? He is God. But in identifying fully with us in our humanity, he wanted to give the right picture of the way in which the first Adam, and now he comes to establish a new order, of the second Adam, starting in effect a new kind of people in the world, people in whom Christ will dwell by the Spirit and the kingdom of heaven will come on earth as it is in heaven. Well, Jesus Christ is under the authority of God the Father. The source of His authority is His communication with the Father. How frequently we read of Jesus setting Himself apart, getting out 
early in the morning, going to a private place in order that he can be alone with the Father to hear the Father's voice and hear what Christ needs to hear in order to fulfill his mission as the Son of God in the world. We see him sometimes sending the apostles away so that he can be alone. He sent them away by the teaching of the scripture. He sent them out across the Sea of Galilee while he stayed on the mountain and he prayed. So we know he was in communication with the Father to hear what the Father had to tell him, but also to do what the Father showed him to do, exactly the way in which the Father did that. Let's look again at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, obviously this is referring to the 17th chapter of John, which contains the Lord's Prayer, the real Lord's Prayer, Jesus' Prayer to the Father, and gives us a model to follow, actually, in terms of our praying, praying for each other's sanctification, protection from the evil one, security in the hand of the Lord, unity as believers. These are things that we do when we pray according to God's will for each other. It's a perfect example, I think, of intercessory prayer that Jesus gave to us. It was his model, his example, and we are to find great comfort in praying in that way. And not just comfort, good outcome because we're praying according to his will. Verse 1 goes on to say, He went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden into which he himself entered and his disciples. It was a garden of Gethsemane. And it was a frequent getaway for Jesus. Jesus loved to go to that garden. So it was there that he would take his apostles and he would model what it meant to pray and show them how to pray in a dependent manner upon God the Father. And he wanted to be in this familiar place at this time. And he did not want to be alone. It's interesting. He was very comfortable being alone with the Father, but he wanted his disciples to be with him. One can venture guesses, educated guesses, as to why that was the case. But I happen to believe that we really don't know how much Jesus loves his followers, really. And in his humanity, he wanted to have time with them in the remaining moments before he would be taken away to be crucified after having a kangaroo court to send a sentence upon him. And so we see him there in this familiar place, a garden. The Bible basically begins with humanity in a garden, doesn't it? The Garden of Eden. And that was marred by sin. And then we see here Jesus pleading our case before the Father. He prays for himself, doesn't he? We see the vulnerability of Christ. And maybe it shocked you a little bit if you have never read the Lucan account of that prayer. He says, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. The other gospel writers indicate that that was more prayed than just that time. He said it more than once. Father, not my will, but your be done. But if it's your will, Lord, take this away from me. Jesus knew it wasn't the will of God. But in his humanity, he was struggling with that because 
He knew how awful it was going to be. It had been decided in the councils of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before creation, probably because of their omniscience, that Jesus would be the one who would pay for the sins of the world. And God the Father would made him, make Him to be the sacrifice for our sin, where God the Father would pour out all of His anger upon Jesus so that you and I would not have to feel and live through everlasting anger and wrath of God, separated from God in what the Bible calls hell. He was going through that in his mind. And finally he settled it, didn't he? Big sigh of relief after having sweat what appeared to be great drops of blood. He comes out of the garden and he's a different man. He's composed. Why? Because he spent that time with the Father. And the Father has reassured him that he will be going to be able to accomplish the mission which he had been given. Look at verse 2. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. How did Judas know the place? Well, he was one of the disciples, right? One of the apostles. He had gone with the twelve there many times before, and he certainly would have surmised and had some way of knowing that Jesus was going to be there so that when he brought this gathering of people who represented, by the way, the three groups that really are opposed to God and Christ in the world. First of all, represented in the Roman cohort, that would be the Gentile world, people who are not descendants of Abraham, who are opposed to God and Jesus Christ. So that was part of that makeup. The other were people who were sent by the chief priests and of what sect were the chief priests. They were the Sadducees. They were the rulers of the temple. They were people who did not believe in the supernatural. They believed this was all there was to life as far as they were concerned. And therefore, they were interested in making money. And they made a lot of money. Remember Jesus in the Gospel of John when we meet him early on in the second chapter, he goes to the temple and he clears the temple of what? Animals and money changers. And we've learned that those people who ran the temple were not happy with Jesus. Not so much that he was claiming to be God. That was the Pharisees' beef, really. We're going to look at them in a moment. They were part of this makeup of Jewish religious leaders, but because he was bad for business. Jesus can be bad for business, can't he? He can be wonderful for business if you know that everything you have, if you're a believer, especially belongs to him and you owe everything to him. Business can be great, but for them it had gone sour because of what Jesus did. They lost a lot of money with Jesus clearing out the temple. And the New Testament indicates there was a later clearing of the temple. Jesus did not like, he hated that kind of activity going in the temple because it was the only place that God-fearing 
Gentiles could come. They could not go into the main area of the temple, but there was a court of the Gentiles where they could gather and they could ask questions of believing Jews and they could hear what was said. And many of them came to a faith like Abraham had, a faith that was real. But there was the group of the Gentiles represented in the Romans, then the descendants of Abraham, and then there was Judas, a betrayer. And lest I forget it, when we encounter this word betray, think with me this way to simplify and really get to the bottom of what it means to betray. Literally, it means to hand over, to hand over. So what Judas was doing, he was handing over Jesus to these representatives of authority. And let's pause here one more time. Represented in that group of people who had been assigned to go and arrest Jesus were ecclesiastical leaders and therefore ecclesiastical or what we would call religious power or authority. And then there was political power in the representation of the people who were Roman soldiers. So it's an interesting mixture, isn't it, when we see this picture when they were there. And then we see that they came in verse 3, they, this group, they came with lanterns and torches and weapons. They were expecting pushback when they got there. And if we could have a bird's eye view of what is happening leading up to the encounter. We, we could see maybe where Jesus is. There might have been some lighting there. There may have been some kind of artificial light there in the Garden of Gethsemane that was being used by the apostles and Jesus. But not much. But if we could see from the other direction, this vanguard of people who are coming with the intention of arresting Jesus and if need be exercising force in order to accomplish that, we would see a lot of light, lanterns and lamps. But the light of the world was in the garden, wasn't he? That's where the real light was. It makes me think about the book of Exodus and the next to the last plague. You remember what it was, right? It was a plague of darkness and the Bible says it was a darkness which could be felt. Have you ever had such a darkness? Darkness which could be felt. It said that the Egyptians could not move for three days. They were paralyzed. And they were localized. They didn't see anybody else but themselves. Or, I mean, they were just scared to death. But the Bible says this. It's awesome. It says... In the homes of the Israelites, there was light. Now, how does that work? Well, simply put, we know in the book of 1 John in the New Testament, it says, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. You know, Jesus was there. There was, it was dark. It was a dark moment for Jesus in terms of wrestling like He was in correspondence to Jesus, these men, I mean, they were troubled. They were worn out. They had gone through some very exhausting psychological experience and 
for all they knew, whatever fate Jesus would have would fall on them. And they were frightened. And sometimes uh, some people can't sleep when they're frightened, but some people just go to sleep. It's one way of escaping, isn't it? Perhaps you know someone like that. But here you see this group moving ever closer to the place where Jesus is. And who are they led by? None other than Judas, one of the apostles of Jesus who has betrayed him. He's ready to hand Jesus over, if you will. Look at verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? He had given instruction to Judas, by the way. You will recall this from the 13th chapter of John. After they had had their feet washed by Jesus because all of them, I'm talking about the apostles, were too good to wash their comrades' feet because that was something reserved not for an upstanding Jew, but for slavers, slaves, people who were Gentiles to wash the feet in many cases. But what we know is that after that, Jesus institutes what we call the Lord's Supper, breaking bread, taking the elements, and then he says to the group, all of them, he said, one of you is going to betray me. So one of you is going to hand me over to the evil treatment. And each one of them said, is it I, Lord? That's an encouraging response to me in the sense that they were so concerned that they would do something like that. And it made it horrific for them to even think about that. It, it just broke their heart except for one, Judas. They didn't even know that Judas was the one. That's interesting, isn't it? And then the position of Christ around the table, we've talked about that before. Judas evidently was right behind Christ and Jesus just leaned over there in a sitting position, almost a lying position. He leans over and he says to Judas, what you do, go do it quickly. And Judas got up and he left to do the work of betraying, handing Jesus over. And the Lord told him to do that. And we don't know if Jesus said, you can find me in Gethsemane. There's no evidence of that in the text. But by the matter of just deduction, he knew where that would be. And so what we see in this passage of Scripture is that Jesus is in this situation of difficulty and he has given instruction to Judas. But also he interrogates his apprehenders, this group of men who are coming to take him away. And he asks them this question, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I'm he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with him. Here's that emphasis on Judas's betraying, handing him over. There's a process that they were going through. And he's asking a very important question. Whom do you seek? Now, let me divert just a moment. And I want you to listen carefully. 
This is a question that we who know Christ need to ask people whom He brings into our sphere of life and don't know Jesus, ask them the same thing because people are seeking God and they don't even know it. You know that? If you came to Christ later in life, after you were a child, maybe as a teenager, a high school student, or adult, or even a senior adult, we had a man last Sunday, remember, in this service, 67 years old, he'll be 68 this month, was baptized as a believer. He had a great, great testimony, didn't he? He was a churchgoer. All his life, from the time he was a baby, he'd been in church. And he was a man who would have thought of himself as being a religious man. But there was something missing in his life. And he talked about it. He said, and I asked him, remember I said, do you have anything to say? And he looked, he wasn't prepared for it, okay. So he just looked at me, but the Spirit gave him a beautiful answer, it's true. He said, I was lost, but now I've been found. This is the condition of so many people in El Paso. So many people all over the world, they're lost and they're looking for the answer to what will solve their problems in this world. I was thinking about the name that Jesus is referred to as being Jesus the Nazarene. Do you know that you can scour all the literature of Israel? and even breach out into Roman historical literature. And you cannot find one reference to the town of Nazareth. It might not even have been a wide spot in the road. There had to be some people there. Jesus lived there. But nevertheless, the point being is, he was from Nowheresville. That's where he was from. He was a nothing to the religious establishment, even those who were conservative, the Pharisees, he was a threat to them. And they resented him. People in power resented him because he did not kowtow to those people. He was a man who knew who he was and he was a man who was comfortable enough with who he was that he was not going to be bothered by where he was from or what he wore, or what he did. He was not that kind of man. And that same Christ, listen, that same Jesus Christ wants you and me to be where he lives. We've seen it in John, haven't we? He says, I will make my abode with you. That is, I'm, I'm going to live with you, and my Father will live with you, and will the, the Father and me, the Son, and you, we'll live together. We'll be in community with one another. So Jesus is here. And when I thought about this whole issue of knowing God and what happens when you know God, you change. You change in a twinkling of an eye when you give your life to Him. And I, some of you are familiar with the Beatles. Most of you probably know. And I remember a song that they sang, and I think it was John Lennon, Paul McCartney, who worked together. Really, it was John Lennon's lyrics. He says, it's nowhere, man. You know that song? 
It wouldn't say you're a real nowhere man sitting in a nowhere land making plans for nobody. Give me your ears, what they basically say. And they, they say, don't be too disturbed about that. Just listen to us and the world will be at your command. There are a lot of people who feel like nobodies who are hurting and they're looking. They want to find the answer to life. It's to be found only in the person of Jesus Christ. He came to fill up the emptiness in our lives. And He gives us Himself to dwell within us. So we see that the Lord Jesus Christ asks them this question, whom do you seek? And then He says, the impact of His identity says, I am He. And look what He goes on to say. In verse 6, when therefore He said to them, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. And the idea of falling back That's a good way to describe it. It's a good translation. What happened? They fell back, drew back. And some people said that they just drew back. But what we know, the verb that's used indicates that they quite likely fell back on their backs. And they couldn't get up because... They were in the presence of the one true God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And he was saying, I am he. But really, what was he saying? The word he, if you have a a translation that has italics every once in a while in it, the word in this edition of the New American Standard Bible, the he is in italics. So that means it wasn't even said by him. He said, I am. That should ring a bell to you who know the Bible. We talked about the Exodus a little bit earlier. In Exodus 3.14, when Moses, a shepherd, on the backside of the Midian desert is tending sheep and he sees a phenomenon. He'd never seen anything like it. There was a bush on fire and it was not being consumed by the flames. And so when we see that in that situation, Moses asks, Who are you? Whom shall I tell? the Israelites when I go to tell them that I'm sent by you to liberate them and whom shall I say sent me when I come before Pharaoh and he simply said tell them that I am sent you I am who I am or I am who I will be depending on which scholar you consider here I am and I'm the one who is with you he is God And so we see why he holds the secret, the key that unlocks the door to being men and women who have a void in our hearts filled. Our sins are forgiven because of the work of Christ and how he comes and comes to dwell in us and give us fullness, abundant life. But that life is something that is a quality of life. It is called eternal life because it is eternal, but it's something that is more than just measured by what we would consider segments of time. It's measured by the quality of it. There's an emptiness in our hearts before we come to Christ. As Blaise Pascal, the great philosopher, mathematician of the 18th century said, when he said, every man, it would apply to people, every person 
has a God-shaped vacuum in his heart that only the Lord can fill. We need the Lord. And he is that person. And so, the interrogation of his apprehenders was important because it led to his showing who he was, speaking who he was. And the result was that they were listening probably unlike they ever thought they would. It learned that Jesus was one who said he was God. We don't know of anyone in that group who was saved as a result of that encounter with Jesus. But I wouldn't be surprised when we get to heaven, there'll be some people out of that group. At least one. We're going to get to him in just a moment. Let's go ahead and read just a little further here and look at the immunity of the disciples. His authority gave them immunity from being arrested. You would think they would be gathered up too, wouldn't you? Chained together and maybe experience the same fate that Jesus did. And he says though in verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am He. If therefore you seek Me, let these go their way. Here again, we see the great love that the Lord Jesus Christ has for us as His followers. And He was concerned about them. Earlier in this passage of Scripture, three times in the first two verses, the Scripture speaks about His being in the garden with His disciples, with His disciples, with His disciples. Earlier in the book of John, in the third chapter, the Scripture talks about how Jesus took His men apart from the hustle and bustle of what they'd been doing in ministry. And they went to an out-of-the-way place so they could just spend some time together. It literally says, Jesus was there spending time with them. To the casual observer, it would have appeared that He was wasting His time. He wasn't teaching them necessarily, although I'm sure there was some of that going on. But He was just hanging out with them. He was enjoying their company, building a relationship with them. And that's what we're to do when we seek to reach people with the gospel. Sometimes we don't have much time to spend building a relationship when we sense God telling us to share the gospel. That's happened to me frequently. But all effective evangelism, which simply means sharing Christ in dependence upon the Holy Spirit and the gospel work of Christ with those people and leaving the results to the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we just have a moment to do that because of the circumstances of where we are, what we're doing, and what our schedules are dictating. But what we do know is that effective evangelizing of any length of time always is relational whether you're a personage like Billy Graham was speaking to tens of thousands of people or one-on-one -on -one like Jesus seemingly was most comfortable doing, like the woman at the well in the fourth chapter of John. The Lord is personal. He knows your name. And He loves you and me as if we were the only people to be loved. That's mind-boggling. But we know who know Him, that is true. He has done that kind of saving of us. Verse 8, let's look at it one more time. 
Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let those go their way, that the word might be fulfilled. What word is he speaking of? Well, look at chapter 17, verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. Now, the people were still there. he's, He's praying this prayer in the presence, probably, of the 11 who were still sticking with him. And they probably scratched their head. They knew who the son of perdition was by this time, Judas probably, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So, Jesus is praying the will of God so that these men would be saved. And everyone that he does save is in that category. Look at verse 10. Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And by the way, the word ear is really earlobe. He just got a little bit. And, but a little bit hurt, I'm sure. And the slave's name was Malchus. Now, he cut off his right ear. If Peter is facing him, in order to cut off that lobe, I think he probably would do it with his left hand, don't you? Maybe he was a lefty. We don't know. Or else he could have been behind him and sneaked up behind him and got him on the left ear with his right hand, thinking he was going to take off the entire ear, not just a little bit of the ear. But God did a miracle through Jesus, didn't he? He restored that earlobe, and his name was Malchus. John is the only one who mentions the name of the unfortunate slave, but really I think he was fortunate. He's the one of that group of people that I would be very surprised if he's not with the Lord in heaven. And scholars differ as to why the other gospel writers don't call this slave by name, but a good solution of that is he would be around in Jerusalem for a while. He would be an exhibit. He could tell a story, couldn't he? He could tell what happened. He had more details in some ways than the apostles did of what took place because he was there. He, the high priest slave. He had a place of really honor in the sense of being able to see all that was going on. And 11 says, Jesus therefore said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And this is where Luke helps us and the other gospel writers. What was going on? Jesus was wrestling in prayer. And he was so burdened and agonized by what was facing him that the Bible says he sweat what looked like great drops of blood. There is a condition, medical condition. It's called hematidrosis. That is probably what happened to Jesus. Under great intense pressure, the capillaries, which are right on the surface in your head, when you're under great pressure, sometimes they burst and out of the pores come blood. Jesus was going through all of that for us. And he says, in that beautiful treatment that Luke gives. What does he say? He says, Father, 
take this cup from me. What was the cup? It was the cup of the wrath of God. When you study the concept of the cup in the book of Jeremiah, for instance, what you discover is it's the wrath of God. And Jesus knew that he was going to have to take not just a sip of the wrath of God, he was going to have to take all the wrath of God, which God had saved up from the beginning of time and including everyone who followed those people present, including Jesus, all of that. Jesus never sinned. And the Bible even says in the book of Hebrews 2.18, he suffered when he was tempted, Jesus did. And finally he said, but not my will, Father, but your will. This takes us back to where we began. Where does Jesus' authority come from? In the flesh. He's God, we know it. But he limited himself in terms of exercising what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it without first consulting the Father. Whatever he heard the Father say, that's what Jesus said. Whatever he saw the Father do, that's what Jesus did. And so he knows he's ready now. He's made, he knows he's going to the cross and suffer all the indignity of that cross and the incredible harsh treatment associated with it. And he said, don't get in the way, Peter. Don't get in the way. Well, Peter learned a lesson. One wonders why Peter was so impetuous and always doing things on the spur of the moment. One thing you can say about Peter, he was bold, wasn't he? He gets a bad rap sometimes from preachers like me. But he, he had a fervor. He didn't know how to do anything halfway. He was all in, wasn't he? But the problem that Jesus addressed in the Luke chapter 22 a little earlier, we didn't read the section where Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has gained permission to sift you like wheat. But I have been praying for you and when you return, strengthen the brothers. He didn't say, I'm not, he didn't say, I'm going to keep you from doing something that's wrong, sinful. But he did say, I'm praying for you. And when you return, in other words, repent after you've sinned. We know what that was like. It's later in this chapter, actually, where he, what did he do? He denied Christ three times. And Peter said, no, 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 no. All these other guys may, but you can count on me, Jesus. Have you ever made some kind of statement to Jesus like that? And then fell miserably on your face. Before you come to Christ, there's no possibility of being in a right relationship with the Lord until you realize you can't depend on yourself at all. Some people who are real strong-willed and accomplishers say, well, I don't want that. I remember sitting in the living room of a man here in El Paso. He was a very accomplished man. He'd overcome so much in his life. He had a poor upbringing. He had risen to the rank of lieutenant colonel in the United States Army. He had served with distinction in Vietnam. A real man's man. And I shared the gospel with him in his home. He listened. And I said... What do you think? Would you like to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? He said, no, I don't want to. He had no sense of need. 
Well, eventually, I hope what happened to him was he did sense need. I know his wife was a Christian. I felt so sorry for her. He was so hard on her. But you've got to give your life. You've got to humble yourself to come to know the Lord. You can't come with willpower and say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to show you how great a guy you get when you get me, Jesus. Well, that had to be dealt with in Peter's life and the other disciples as far as that goes. Well, let me conclude by saying what we can learn from this passage of Scripture and all of the Gospel of John, really, is we have one subject and one subject alone. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And we have the gospel, of course. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then also to the Gentile or the Greek. We know that. But we have to begin with the person of Jesus. Who is He? He is God. I am. Three times. I am, I am, I am. And He is man, fully man. Fully God, fully man. And He lived a perfect life. And He went to the cross. He drank the cup of the wrath of God. And in so doing, He made it possible for us to know God through Him and have forgiveness of our sin and eternal life. The primary focus of this body of believers or any other body of believers in El Paso or in the world is the same. The person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. The gospel, as we've seen, is the power of God. It's the power of the Holy Spirit in us. He lives in us, and He is the one who reaches out through us to minister to other people. There are a lot of nowhere men and women in the world. They're aimless. They're looking. Just it, It's just amazing. It's, it's so sad, isn't it? And rather than just be sad about it or get angry at some of those people, what we need to do is say, Lord, bring some of those people into my life. Lord, give me one for a neighbor. Maybe I've got one who is a neighbor and I don't even talk to my neighbors because I'm too busy with my own life and I have to hang out with my Christian friends so I don't get tainted by the world. Now, we don't want to get tainted by the world. Don't, don't mishear me, right? But Jesus was comfortable, especially they who were sinners, so-called. They were the people most comfortable with Jesus, weren't they? And so we just need to be on the lookout, share the gospel. For whom are you looking? People are looking for Christ and don't know it. And we have the name that is above every name. That is, at His name, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we know that there is no other name under heaven whereby a person or people can be saved except the name of Jesus. And the name includes His character and His work. And He wants to live in you and live in me and have rulership of our lives so that we can embody what it means to be a follower of Christ. And we, by association with Him in submission to Jesus, 
we will have the gospel message embodied in our lives and we will be used by the Lord to help others come to know Christ. One last thing I want to mention is relevant in this whole discussion is that Jesus was not afraid of Satan. We know the way he handled him in the temptation event. But he says in John 14, in verse 30, I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. He's talking about the devil. He has nothing in me. That's his way of saying he has no control of me. He doesn't have any of his claws in me. And I want to come, he says in the next chapter, I want you to abide in me and I in you. And you can accomplish anything I give you to do. Not based on your own ingenuity or your own power, but on my power and my will for your life. Would you bow your head? Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity to be here today together. And we're asking you, Lord, today. For those of us who know you, we say, Lord Jesus, forgive us for wanting a sometime Lord instead of a full-time Lord. We know you don't go for just our yielding part of ourselves to you. We want to yield all of who we are to you, spirit, soul, and body. So, Lord, for us who in, are in the body of Christ, but we know we're still withholding things from you. We're trying to do things in our own will, in our own way. So, Lord, we just say, forgive us. Forgive me, Lord, for trying to do this on my own. And please fill me with your spirit so that I can be fruitful for your glory. And then if you're here and you don't know Jesus at all, it's become clear. Or maybe you knew it before you came today. How can you turn away the God-man who offers you forgiveness of your sin and eternal life? He's offering that to you today. And the way you receive it is just to say, here I am, Lord. I'm sorry, Lord, for being ignorant of who you are and when hearing about you, I have shunned you. So today, Lord, I want to end that streak of rebellion and pride. And I just give my heart to you now, Lord. Take me, Lord. Use me if you will. I, I just want to be yours and let you be my master. I come to you today asking that humbly. In Jesus' name, amen.